Omukam karoti vachalam pangum langayati girim, yat kripa tahamaham vande parmanandam padavam. I salute that great one, Sri Krishna, who is the bliss of Devaki and Yashoda, and the pride of his father, whose inspiring words cause the blind to see the deaf to hear, and the lame scale the highest mountains. Om peace, peace, peace. Om Masato, Om Masato Masadgamoya, Tamaso Ma Joytir Gamoya, Mrityor Ma Amritam Gamoya, Abhira Bhira Mayeti Rudra Yate Dakshina Mukam Tenamam Pahinicham Om Shanti 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 <coughs> Lead us from darkness to light, lead us from lower truth to higher truth, lead us from the unreal to the real, and lead us from the illusion of death to eternal life. Reach us through and through with thy sweet and benign presence. Om peace, peace, peace. May peace be unto us and may peace be unto all. Om Harium. Good morning everyone. Saturday, the 8th of January, the brand new year, and we meet, as is our want and our penchant, that is, the devotees of God, meet to speak about the Lord and Mother of the universe. So to provide inspiration in this routine of daily life and to uplift the mind, we were studying these teachings in Portland just last weekend, and we wondered about the pervasive suffering of human beings and the denseness of the mind to try and comprehend these teachings as we were just chanting. That one who realizes the inner self, which is not matter, which is not thought, and which is not energy, something completely different. In this very life is the extremely blessed one, and we see that by way of the saints and seers and sages and savants and saviors of the various religious traditions of the world that have come before us and demonstrated and illustrated for us this profound truth of inner being, of pure presence. Not becoming, but being. Being is different than becoming. Becoming is what's happening all around us to the universe. Evolution, time, space, causality, movement, thought, activity, even transformation and transmutation. All of that is in the realm of becoming or what we call relativity. But that one thing called reality, that's outside of time, space and causality. That's why the seers meditate upon that with a capital T and realize that in their 
deepest contemplations. Why is it that beings can't realize that? The question was asked as we can. The answer is provided very nicely by Lord Vashishta, whose teachings we'll have tomorrow morning. Beings don't get enlightened because they always concentrate on two things. They can't concentrate on one thing. That is, the one thing that's most important, divine reality. They have a very hard time shutting their minds down because it's become a habit for the mind to run. The mind either runs in cycles of depression or lassitude or it runs in cycles of restlessness or it seeks pleasure and gravitates only to that. So it never goes beyond good and bad, pleasure and pain, life and death and all other pairs of opposites as we just chanted. So Vashishta tells the young Ram who's just a teenager and who's got this slight but pervasive sense of maya, of illusion in the mind. Beings can't gain enlightenment because they can't focus on one thing. They always are going after two things or many things. Diversity, multiplicity, is a form of restlessness. So that's why they say truth is very simple. <laughs> it's the simplest of things to concentrate on one thing, yet we know from our attempts at it how difficult it is to empty the mind of thought and to even rest on thought of the Lord, on Jesus or on Buddha or on Ramakrishna or other great beings. If one chooses an ideal and focuses on it, then as Christ said, if you love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind and with all thy soul, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But that one indivisible reality is the subtle most thing it's the subtlest thing in all beings. That is, you may say, Earth is the least subtle, being solid, vibrating very densely, and water is a little bit less dense, and fire is more ethereal. And then you come to air, and then ether, space. Those things are all very subtle, and they cause the mind of human beings even to go into a more refined state when they're contemplated. Meditation on the five elements on the constituents of our universe. But beyond ether and the elements is mind, and beyond mind is intellect, and subtler than intellect even is that cosmic mind of God. But subtle most of all is Brahman. And you have that within you, that's the self within. You can see how it's not an energy, not a thought, not a material, it's not a molecular content. Therefore, it's very difficult for the mind, which is dwelling and abiding and gravitating amongst all these material principles, these energies and these thought forms, to shut them down. And that is the word yoga you hear nowadays, not in the West, which is meant by a sort of uh, obsession with physical yoga, but the desire to be in yoga, union with God. And Yoga begins by attacking that false premise. Much in the same way Vedanta does in the mind, by saying the world is unreal and your true self is real. In other words, you're dreaming this dream of life and death, but you're the dreamer, so you could put the dream to end and wake up into your true nature and live a divine life, an eternal life, and not give way to those tendencies of duality and, 
and uh, fragmentation and separation and this restlessness and so forth. You can do that to such an extent that you can live in a non-vibrational state. They call that quiescence of mind or peace of mind. You need peace of mind first and foremost. That was said by Holy Mother Sri Sharda Devi. Oh my dear, you must have peace of mind first and foremost. Through peace of mind, then you can get a glimpse of that true inner self. So Vashishto, whose teachings we'll discuss tomorrow, talks about it in terms of non-fluctuation of mind. He makes it somewhat into more of a science rather than a plea. That is, you can plead with your mind, Oh mind, would you please shut up? Would you please quiet down and just give me some peace? See, but, but the mind doesn't seem to listen because it's got that habit, like a restless dog running from corner to corner from fire hydrant to fire hydrant. <laughs> it, can't, it can't stop its penetrations around the neighborhood. See, it's doing its own kind of worldly pilgrimage. But you can also appeal to the mind rather than just plea with it and say, oh mind, you know this is best for you. This is really what's going to be best for you in the long run. It's going to take you beyond pleasure and pain which always go in cycles. You can't have pain without pleasure, and you can't have pleasure without pain. The two will always come, because they're pairs, they're pairs of opposites. Dwanva Mohena, the father of yoga, called them the pairs of opposites which moha, delude. They take you into the realm of two and many, and they leave you bereft of your sense of oneness. And that sense of oneness you try and recapture by meditating daily. You practice a little meditation each day, or you study a great scripture like we are doing this morning, Bhagavad Gita, or you try and turn your work into worship. That's a great task accomplished, a great art accomplished by the illumined souls. Or you make your heart so devoted that, as I said, uh, quoting Jesus, that you love the Lord thy God with your whole heart. That loving God, one-pointedly, is another form of meditation through the path of devotion. And you love the Lord so much that the world simply goes away. It doesn't bother you anymore. You're, you're not moving through the world anymore. You're w moving through God's own atmosphere. That's the great uh, facility of pure love. If we have any prayer in Vedanta at all, it's not to ask for anything but pure love, pure knowledge, pure devotion, pure love so that the world is transformed into nothing but God, and pure knowledge so that the mind is clear. It is philosophically, religiously, mentally clear. Quiescence of mind, peace of mind, and pure devotion. Those things are attained by this one premise, which I said yoga attacks. In yoga, there's been a connection between the seer and the seen. And the seer has confused itself thinking it's the seen. That is, it believes itself to be in the world of objects. And by uh, moving amongst objects, then it begins to identify with them. By identifying with them, it begins to become attached to them. By becoming attached to them, then when it doesn't attain them, it gets frustrated. When it gets frustrated, it gets angry. When it gets angry, it loses itself. And when it's loses itself, that's called the road to ruin, you see. That's the road to ruin, and a person becomes depressed enough hours, days, months, years, lifetimes of depression and one is born in the next lifetime 
mentally deranged with problems. It's called samskara in the mind. So Vedanta takes very seriously, as does yoga and tantra and sankhya and Buddhism and other great systems of philosophy that try and uh, reconnect us with our true self, make the seer realize itself as the seer, takes very seriously this fact of transmigration, reincarnation, and also the suffering that proceeds from it, and moves to try to alleviate that. Well, this is exactly what Sri Krishna, the great archetypical soul, is doing on the battlefield of Kurukshetra with Arjuna, his beloved disciple. And we know from studying now the first 11 chapters together that Arjuna's mind has undergone a revolution in just 12 short discourses by Sri Krishna. This master of life and death, this avatar, this divine incarnation, has come before Arjuna and revealed himself. In fact, last time I was here, we had that chapter 11 where Krishna touched him on the head or on the heart and Arjuna had the senses transformed and he saw the cosmic form. He saw the entire universe uh, existing there in the cosmic form of God and uh, was amazed at such a vision. So, what to speak even of just the mere cosmic form of God, there's this impersonal or formless reality beyond name and form, beyond the realm of name and form. That means outside of space and time and causation, outside of even the mind's ability to conceive, that's Brahman, or what Sri Krishna calls my supremely unmanifested form. And that's what Sri Krishna begins to get at in chapter 12. He begins to teach Arjuna, who in the first chapter was very depressed because he had to go to battle and kill people. He was very depressed about this because some of his relatives were on the other side, you see, in the other army. So he came up against a very powerful moral question and also contemplating that he was stripped of his manhood. He was not able to function on the battlefield and even pick up a sword. Krishna had to inform him about the birthless, deathless nature of everything, about the non-originated nature of all things. Like waves coming out of an ocean, they they just sink back into the ocean again and then they come forth again. But the principal wave simply exists as name and form in the ocean. The whole thing is actually water, and water is connected indivisibly with all other water. All that other water is one huge ocean, one vast, fathomless, indivisible, homogeneous ocean of consciousness. Krishna has to give him, reminding him of these very powerful teachings so he will be armed to the teeth with a kind of weapon that isn't a sword or an arrow or a bow or a shield but a very subtle weapon because Krishna tells him don't you know that the soul of mankind can't be cut with a sword can't be pierced with a spear can't be burnt by fire it's an indivisible eternal thing all pervasive and as we were saying earlier very very subtle very difficult to comprehend or to perceive can't be seen with these eyes can't be heard with these ears can't be comprehended with this mind so then the question might come forth then if it can't be comprehended by the mind why should we think about it if it's impossible and there you're headed towards nihilism you see 
headed toward falling short of comprehending the formless nature of Brahman. And it's very good that we had seers and sages that did finally comprehend the nature of the formless. They could come back and tell us, no, go further, go further. Because by contemplating the nature of the formless, you purify the mind. And the mind becomes no mind. There's, there's no mind there anymore. A mind is a crystallized component of various thoughts and desires and preferences and aversions and attractions. And so if you break that mind down and it just dissipates, like you see in the state of Sri Ramakrishna, for instance, who we, who we saw just in the last century, going into samadhi and, and having, as it were, this state of no mind all the time. And occasionally he could gather his mind back to speak to you, but it was very difficult for him to gather his mind back from that. Is it already dissolved and dispersed into the, like a hailstone into the ocean? It had become one with its true nature. So he had to make an attempt to gather that mind back. And most of us are struggling to try and break that mind down so that we can have a taste of it. You see, hailstone has become huge. The mind has become like an endless piece of string that you're tying knots into every day. So it's just, pretty soon it ends up to be a huge ball of knots. You've gone into someone's office and seen this rubber band ball that they've made over days. Sort of like the, the mind has become so full of its restlessness and its, its broodings and its depressions and its joys too and its happinesses, which are all, again, fleeting and transitory, that it's just become a crystallized component of these things. So breaking that mind down is the task that stands between you and your true nature. It's a task which stands before the aspirant. How to detach the seer from the scene and make it see itself. When it sees itself, it realizes that it was the source of all creation. It begins to see, as Krishna tells Arjuna in the Gita, that God is not a creator, as we've been raised to think. God is beyond creation and preservation and destruction. And creation, preservation, and destruction actually don't exist. Really what's going on is projection, maintenance, and withdrawal. If everything is birthless and deathless, then everything that is is being projected, like pictures on a screen. Then it's playing there for a while without ever affecting the screen. Then it's being drawn back in. Doesn't that sound like the mind to you? See, projecting, playing, and then withdrawing. So the mind is the great projector of this dream play. And if it does so consciously, that play is called Leela, divine sport. If it does so unconsciously, uh, that is, it becomes bereft of the truth that it itself is the source of this pictorial presentation that's dancing before the mind and senses in the form of worlds and other beings and animals and the five elements, the whole realm of name and form. If it becomes bereft of that, then it is called maya, see? or Buddha called it samsara, cycles of birth and death and ignorance. And these cycles go on and on. You can project as many dream lifetimes as you want. So the great seers and devotees come forth and say, O oh, dreamer, awake. You must awake from this dream of separation. You are ever one with your source. So here you have one of the most wonderful ways of meditating. It's called the Swarupa Jnana, meditation on your own essence. See? 
you cause the mind to quit fluctuating, you sit in that silence for a time, and then you begin to see the connection between yourself, this, and Brahman, that. As you identify more and more, this becomes that. You realize that this is that, and all along you've been causing a breach. And part of the cause of that breach has been your identification with the realm of name and form, forgetting yourself to be the seer and attaching so much to the idea of the scene that you forget you're the seer. So that's what yoga moves to break down. If you want to really quintessentialize it into one sort of easy to comprehend teaching, there's been a misconception here. There's been an outward movement, a fallacious movement, which Vedanta calls avidya, ignorance. And Vedanta puts it more in, in terms of nitya, nitya, vastu, viveka. Nitya, there's the eternal. Anitya, there's the non-eternal. And vastu, viveka, you have to have viveka, discrimination, between what's eternal and what's non-eternal. If you arm yourself, as I was saying, again, with that truth of the difference between the seer and the seen, or the eternal and the non-eternal, then you come back to your source. You can do that very swiftly if you have a mind to or maybe I might say if you have no mind to. So Krishna is teaching Arjuna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. We know that to be pretty much the foundation of Bhagavad Gita. And in this 12th chapter, he begins to speak about the form and the formless. Arjuna, whose mind was Vishada, depressed earlier, now is showing signs of not only just regaining its balance again, but showing signs of inquisitiveness. That is, it's, it's got its curiosity back. It's wondering about these great truths and beginning to ask questions. So we know right off the top of chapter 12, if you're following the text, Arjuna has a question. He says, All those devotees, Krishna, who are steadfast and who worship you, and those again who worship the imperishable, the unmanifest, which of these are better versed in yoga? The question comes to his mind, well, you've said that there's God with form and there's God that's formless. There's those two realities. If you met Sri Krishna, if you walked up to him, he'd say, well, what do you believe in, God with form or the formless God? And some people would say, well, I believe in the formless God, it's the Almighty Father, Brahman, Buddha nature. I believe in the formless. And Sri Krishna would say, good, good, that's well and good. Go ahead with that path, but never think it's the only way. Don't become narrow. And other people would say, I believe in God with form. You see, I believe in Krishna or Jesus or Buddha. That's how I trace my way to reality, how I keep in touch with my true self. And Sri Krishna would give the same pat on the back. Is That's good, keep going, but never think your own path is the only way. More in terms of truth, said that everyone thinks their own watch keeps the right time. But really, Everyone must set their watch by the sun, like that sundial keeps the correct time. So that sun or that sundial is truth itself, is Brahman itself. You should always check in with that, which might lead us to believe that you need to have some contact with the formless reality. If you've become limited only to the realm of name and form, and the highest thing you can conceive of is God with form in the form of an avatar or a guru or a sage or a seer or a saint, then you have to ask that seer, see? And that's what Arjuna is doing. He wants to know who's better versed in yoga, who's more adept at being in union with God, those who worship God with form 
and those who worship the formless reality? Well, this has been one of the most long-lived of questions in the realm of dualities, because it is proposing another duality to the mind, form and formlessness. That's one of the uh, more subtle dualities. Another very subtle duality is bondage and liberation. See, I'm, I'm bound, so I'm seeking liberation. I'm, I'm stuck here, so I've got to get free. And in spiritual life, of course, there's no such thing as bondage and liberation, ultimately, because you are that self, and you know that self, then you're ever free, never bound, as Vivekananda used the phrase. The, the self is always ever free and never bound. It's the mind that's stuck. The mind has to be purified so that it can become identified with its true nature and therefore become unbound which we were just saying, untying all those mental knots or those misconceptions, those samskaras, those negative karmas, those passions, lust, anger, greed, envy, jealousy, avarice, uh, those fetters, shame, grief, pride, and so forth. The six passions and the eight fetters all have to be diminished. And that process is called purification of mind, when the mind becomes pure, then it naturally sees what's there in everything. It sees the essence of everything. It may note the outer forms, and it may have some consciousness of the forms and the fancies, they say. See, But it will never fall into that error, that primal error of forgetting itself to be the truth. See? Know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Because Christ told you, you cannot have two masters. God and mammon you must choose one. Those who choose mammon, the world, are they damned? No. Well, they've put themselves under a very harsh teacher. And the world will slowly beat those problems out of the mind. Sri Ramakrishna put that in another way. See, Sri Ramakrishna was just the Christ in another age. He put that in another way. He said, a cat treats her kitten one way and treats a mouse in another way. That was the way he explained it. Those beings who take refuge in God are like the kittens you know, of, of, of the Lord, of the mother of the universe. But those beings who take refuge in the world are like the mouse. They might find claws hidden and teeth concealed amidst those apparently happy experiences of the world, of which all of us have probably found by now, who, or you wouldn't be sitting in this room. So what I'm saying here is there are many, many sets of dualities. Probably the most basic duality is attraction and aversion, or you might even call it pain and pleasure. Attraction to something, aversion to something else. I love this, I hate that. This is one way in which the mind gets drawn out into habitual action so that it can create some scars for itself. God stands back uh, unattached, don't ever believe that God's involved in the world. That's not happening. That's your misconception. You're involved in the world of Maya. The only way God can become involved in the world is if he appears in the form of an illumined soul. That is, he's appearing in the forms of all non-illumined souls too, but unbeknownst, unconscious of the fact. That's why Vivekananda said, mankind is really just God walking around on two legs. But he has to realize that fact. Then he can live a divine life. And then he will see and realize the true self within. The kingdom of heaven is within you.
as a way of putting that. So attraction and aversion is one of the great dualities. And you go up the scale a little bit, you get to those naughty areas of virtue and vice. There's another nice duality where moral people are trying to make sense out of the apparent injustices of the world, trying to keep their devotions to God intact and growing in a world where uh, moral values are falling apart or where they're masquerading for something else via politics and government and business, attachment to money, fame, wealth, families, countries, nations, all the maya of that. And then if you go a little bit beyond that, you get to these religious dualities, or philosophical dualities like, like uh, bondage and liberation, or form and formlessness. And when the mind begins to contemplate something that subtle, then it begins to get towards the eternal question, who am I? At first you see it's asking, what is this? If you say, what is this? You might say, science is asking, what is this? They're studying physical things, physics. That means that they're relegating their search and narrowing their search down to something that's of a decaying nature, of a changing nature. But the Samkhya scientists of old weren't interested in what was changing. They wanted to know the one unchanging thing and realize their self in that. And then along the way, maybe the aspirant might ask, uh, where am I? Or what is my purpose for life? What's the purpose of life? That's a great question they ask. But all of these questions culminate at a higher philosophical level when you start to ask, who am I? Ramana Maharshi made that very evident in this day and age when he was living up until the uh, mid-1900s. But we are studying Yoga Vashishta tomorrow and he might be what you call the very source or king of who am I. As he called it Atmavichara, one that this great sentinel of, of spiritual life is attributed to, asking the question, who am I? Atmavichara means inquiry into what's real, inquiry into the self. What's the true self? Is the true self my body? Is the true self energy? Is the true self nature? Is the true self mind? Is the true self intellect? Is the true self ego? In Vedanta, this is what's called the five sheaths. Like Sri Ramakrishna said, in the, in the case of the banana tree, you have these sheaths. You take a one sheath off, there's another sheath, and then another sheath. Finally, you get to the pith. That's the actual internal part, you see. But they're all sort of almost inseparable. You have to really take a lot of trouble to separate one from the other. Uh, same with an onion. You keep peeling it and peeling it and peeling it, and you find out there's really no middle. It's just all peels. You use that in relation to the ego, human ego. Plus, it makes you cry when you do it. So you, you peel an onion. So you're, you're looking for the source of the ego, and uh, you'll find it's a very... A difficult proposition because it's the subtle most of all principles ego that's what caused the separation from Brahman inexplicably so it's some line drawn on water it's some strange mechanism by which all beings are somehow confounded into thinking that they're the body-mind mechanism instead of the true self so in this search, uh, who am I, you go inside and you, you weigh all of these things. 
it's an actual homework you do, just like you would you would go to school, right, Chris? You'd go to school and do homework. So if you do homework on the spiritual level, this is what your teacher, your guru, tells you. You have to start doing a mental analysis. This actually takes opening up to your inner self. You're not working in the same way that you worked at school or, at, or in the business place or in the marketplace. You're exercising a subtle inner muscle. You're working in the realm of the light of intelligence, which is a very subtle thing. Working in that inner realm, which is not yet the self, but which is a close manifestation of the self, causes you to acknowledge that it exists. That's what you need to do first. You have to sort of make a conscious attempt at acknowledging that there is an inner realm. They call that the transcendent realm because it's not seen with eyes or heard with ears and spoken with the tongue and so forth. That's a, an inner realm that's very subtle, the realm of the intellect or intelligent, the light of intelligence. So by going in there and, and actually contemplating and leaving this aside or behind, get thee behind me, then you begin to affirm, oh, this is another world and I've been cognizant of it, but I haven't really been using it, I haven't really been diving into it in the form of inner contemplation. Or maybe I've been using this out here, you see, in the realm of physics. You see, I've been using this intelligence and I've been just relegating it to the external form. But if I wanted to really go back to the source, I should inquire as to where that intelligence comes from. What is mind, in other words? Not just what is world, the five elements, or what is energy, whether it be kinetic energy or electricity or prana, they call it, life force. In Hawaii, we call it mana. It's a force that flows through the nerves, which is there in nature. So you take this inner journey, and you begin to plumb the depths of this ocean of intelligence, infinite intelligence, which is just like a light. It's not the light of Brahman yet. You haven't reached the source yet, but still it causes you to acknowledge its existence and begin to live inside. It's called an internal life. You have an inner life. You say, get a life. Vedanta says, get an inner life. <laughs> when you have that inner life, then you're beginning to operate in the realm of I am, instead of I will be, or I'm not. I am that self. Then It leads you deeper and deeper into the connection which Christ made when he said, I and my Father are one. He came upon something very deep, and you know that if he spent so many days in the wilderness trying to reconnect with that, that it must have been some very internal process that was going on. They asked Holy Mother about that. She said, well, why have you come to see me? Have I grown two horns? In other words, does that spiritual practice somehow change you outside? No, it, the whole thing is going on inside. Nobody sees it. That's why you can't recognize an illumined soul. You're walking around the world, you could run right into Jesus and say, oh, hello, fellow. Uh, see, How are you? And then pass him right by. So it's, it's not like somebody grows two horns or begins to shine by some ethereal light, an aura. See, that only happens at certain moments. It takes a jeweler to recognize the value of a diamond. You could shine with all the light you want and the world will either ignore you or put you to death.
because you're somehow different. So this is an inner subtle process that goes on in us. And our insights, our realizations, they're all very, very uh, interpersonal. They can't even be measured. That is, you can't measure your spiritual growth and say, well, I've come from here to here. It's more like you fell asleep on a train and all that countryside rolled by and you woke up and you're already at your destination, but you didn't see any territory between point one and point two. That's how spiritual life progresses. In spiritual life, you can't measure your progress. It's vanity to try and do so. You simply awake one day and your ignorance is gone. And in the meantime, you have to be at struggling, practicing. So spiritual life is like that, particularly in the way that one engages in it. That is, you have to be uh, strong, fearless, bold, manly. Even the women have to be manly. And the men have to be sort of womanly because there are so many impediments associated with gender. It's another form of separation. It's another form of duality, isn't it? There's no gender in the Atman. There's no gender in Brahman. So here we are back in the world of relativity again. So you have to be fearless and bold. What's that mean? You have to be willing to practice austerity. I would say the art of sacrifice has been half forgotten and the art of austerity has been almost totally forgotten. Sacrifice means doing your work as worship for the good of all mankind. That means you're going to have to forget your own individual considerations and work for the highest good of all beings, loka sangraha. Krishna calls it in the Gita. The lokas, the worlds, sangraha, for the good of all, the highest good of all the worlds. And note that this is the highest good, not just the good, means you just want to supply people with goods and clothing. That being done, there's something higher than that. It's not just a social well-being we're after, or even a sort of a religious morality. It's arming those beings who are on the battlefield of relativity with the knowledge that they're one with Brahman. There could be no higher or better thing than to awaken a person to that verity, to that truth because then all of life will vibrate with divinity. Even death will vibrate with divinity. That is, you'll transcend death. You'll see it as an illusion because you're not a, identified solely with your body anymore than you're, you're identified with something that's deathless. So how can you die? You become one of the Ajatavadans. Ajati means no birth. They realize themselves to be beyond birth. Therefore, out of the reaches of the clutches of death. Therefore also, beyond the process of samsara, birth and death and ignorance, cycles of births. Therefore they can take on a body when they want, they can give it up when they want. Like a child, Sri Krishna tells Arjuna, outgrowing clothes and taking on another set. It's that simple for them. So spiritual life doesn't proceed the way worldly life does. Uh, there are different fruits. You have one fruit in worldly life, but the fruit to spiritual life is unique, endemic to its own soil. It's very, very unique to itself. It proceeds on a different basis. And it's not something that is that tangible. Why do you think so many people have failed to go after it? And you won't find yourself in the predicament of Arjuna, see, who's on the battlefield now, 
one of the greatest warriors of his time all of a sudden can't even pick up a sword. See, what's that all about? As they say. So, Krishna through the chapters has been remanning him. He was unmanned, now he's remanning him. He's giving him weapons which don't show. You have to be armed to the teeth, but sport no weapon. Not one weapon will be visible, it's all internal. It doesn't matter what realm you're in. The realm of a merchant, the realm of a, a warrior, the realm of a seer, or the realm of a householder. Whatever realm you find yourself in, you have to be armed to the teeth with these eternal principles which will save you. Beyond even <coughs> just saving, which is called salvation, you have to go the distance and be completely free. Moksha or mukti we call it. And I said Arjuna's mind is becoming more and more free. That's why he asks this question. Which of the two are better versed in yoga? And on the board we see slokas 2 through 4. And that's Krishna's answer to him. He says, Those who have fixed their minds on me, and who ever steadfast and endowed with supreme faith, worship me, them do I consider perfect in yoga. But those who worship the imperishable, the indefinable, the unmanifested, the omnipresent, the unthinkable, the unchangeable, the immovable, the eternal. In other words, the formless. Having restrained all their senses, even-minded everywhere, engaged in the welfare of all beings, verily they also come unto me. So he's saying here, both God with form, God the formless is true, and those who follow the paths, if they satisfy certain criterion, they will come to their true nature. They will come to Krishna of supremely unmanifested form. Remember earlier he was saying there's the manifested, that is the worlds of name and form, always going around and around. And then there's the unmanifested, that's actually heaven, what happens after death, the mind and so forth, where the mind goes. Because the soul doesn't travel. Don't fall into that misconception. Vedanta clears that up or all other religions that the soul doesn't travel, it's all pervasive. It's everywhere at once. Since it's not of a material constituency or an energy or a thought form, it's of a spiritual nature. It's the light of intelligence. It's everywhere at once. That's why it's omniscient. All-seeing, all-knowing, and so forth. That's what you want to try and comprehend, the all-pervasiveness of Atman. And give up ideas that it's being born or it's dying in certain forms or that it's only allocated to some things and not to others. It's there in the saint and the sinner. The sun shines on saint and sinner alike. In the same way, that one Atman is pervasive everywhere. It's beyond morality and immorality. It's beyond merit and demerit. It's untainable, unimpeachable, intangible and infrangible. It cannot be separated out. It's one cohesive whole, and that's your true nature. It's of pure conscious awareness. It doesn't come into being when you wake up and disappear when you go to sleep. It isn't born when the body is born or die when the body dies. Krishna has already made this clear in the second chapter of the Gita to Arjuna without any doubt, followed by words that if you don't carp and cavil about this truth and you just accept it, then everything will be fine with you. But those who don't accept this truth, well, they go to various uh, other gods, lesser gods, see, 
or maybe to know God at all, they go to their own ego, see, and simply worship their own ego, which is a process of sheaths and layers and onions and tears, as we've just said. So notice that about this he also says, engaged in the welfare of all beings, those who are attached to the formless or love the formless reality, as long as they are still engaged in the welfare of all beings, he says, their path is fine. And in fact, he says, then right after, I should have continued, greater is their difficulty, though, whose minds are set on the unmanifested. For the goal of the unmanifested is very hard for embodied to reach. So it's easier to practice the path of bhakti, as Sri Ramakrishna said in this day and age. Love the Lord with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul. You're on the slow boat of bhakti yoga. And then a few whose temperament is suited to it are taking the boat of jnana yoga, of nandu wisdom. They cut through to the quick. They want it right now. And it's very difficult. There are a lot of dangerous sidetracks to that. But so what? There are a lot of dangerous sidetracks in guru yoga too. Some gurus aren't what they say they are. So you have to also have a certain discrimination there. If you say there are dangers inherent in both paths, then you have to see what's suited to your temperament and proceed that way. Now, Sri Ramakrishna enjoined upon us being well-rounded. That is the four yogas. One of those yogas you're going to be good at. You're either going to be good at action, you're going to be good at meditation, you're going to be good at study, or you're going to be good at devotion. Those are the four yogas. So you assess, you analyze, you find out which yoga you're best at. If you're good at all the yogas, but you're not good at the yoga of washing dishes, then you practice the yoga of washing dishes, seeing God through dishwashing. See? Because there's where you'll get your vision of God. And one great Christian saint did. Hated washing dishes, and then just forced himself to do it, and that's when he had his first vision of God. See? So you, you have to, in other words, according to Krishna, help those areas of yourself grow which need it the most, not just stay with the one thing you're best at, but actually get well-rounded. Like Arjuna here on the battlefield, he's the best archer of his day. You don't want to come close to Arjuna in the war if you're within arrow range. <laughs> you can split an apple at 500 feet with an arrow. You want to stay out of his bow range if you're in the war, unless you're very well protected with armor and so forth. But if, if there's anything left open, you might put it through your eye. You see. But he also is great at the sword. He's a great chariot driver. He's an expert at wrestling and so forth. You know the best martial artist today, the champion of all other martial arts, they have mixed martial arts now, is a Greco-Roman wrestler. The punchers try and fight him, he's under their guard, he gets them on the ground and they're, they're done for. They can't hit him anymore. So being very good in one thing and being very well-rounded is a very powerful thing, and that's what Arjuna has here. He has this one thing he's best at, and he has knowledge of all other things as far as weapons and strategies of war go. So another one of those examples in the Gita of how to fight on the battlefield of the world. All of us are fighting on the battlefield of the world. In this warfare of relativity, war against ignorance for the gaining of wisdom and knowledge or true self.
So his conundrum here is who's better first at yoga? You see, it comes down to that kind of warfare. Who's better? Who's the most adept? Those who worship God with form, those who worship the formless reality. Krishna says both, essentially. But they have to follow certain criterion. For instance, they have to be ever steadfast. You can't worship God in either form if you're not steadfast. You have to be endowed with supreme shraddha, means faith, shraddha, combination of enthusiasm, zeal, strength, all born of realization. That means faith isn't just something which is either mere belief, because belief can be shaken. Faith is more adamant. You cannot shake this faith. You see, I know this. So it has to be born of realization, has to be born of knowledge. So faith isn't just of the heart in Vedanta. It's of the clear mind. You can have it in your heart, but your mind can be shaken. And that's exactly what's happened to Arjuna. He knows the truth, but his faith around it has been shaken. Krishna is here to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. He's going to give him that which will uh, place him above all fear, outside of all doubt. He's going to allow Arjuna to make fear afraid of itself, to put death in its own grave and become not only just a fearless warrior who's going to win the day, but a seer who's beyond the duality of war and peace. So that kind of faith is enjoined upon him. What else does he say? He says, have to restrain all the senses. Master of the senses. The Indriyas, they're called. The senses are actually little gods. So there's a power associated with each of the sense organs. Take that power collect it and take it inside instead of letting the senses wander out. That's called prachahara. Prachahara in yoga means withdrawing the senses from their objects at will. It doesn't mean like you can never eat again. You have to give up food or something. It means at will you can withdraw your mind. Like for instance, you have food and somebody hungry comes to your door. If you have prachahara, then you can give them your food and go without that night. Man does not live by bread alone anyway, so why don't we practice this? Man lives by something else, something much more subtle, as we've been saying. So if you have prachahara, the ability to take the seer away from the scene, if you want to put it in yogic terms, then you've got a very powerful quality and strength in your life. Something you can always depend on. It doesn't mean like you always have to bring it forth and use it, but it's there for you. You've developed it. So that's why he says, restrain all the senses. That's a, quali that's a qualification for both those who love God with form and those who love God beyond form. And as I said earlier, also be engaged in the welfare of all beings. So you can see how if you love the formless and you reach the goal, and your tendency is just to merge in the formless, then you're leaving behind all other beings. You see, it seems rather selfish. So then they came up with these ideas of like Jivan Mukti in Vedanta or Bodhisattva in Buddhism, that I will come back and help all other beings to also realize their true nature, which is the highest good of all beings, not the altruistic good, which has to come along the way to more or less degree depending on conditions of relativity. 
But the highest good isn't subject to the conditions of relativity. That's that you realize the self, realize the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that only happens if thine eye is made single. Well, so you're going to have to take these ten senses, gather those powers back, and put them in the heart, in meditation, control them, and then be equipped with this huge inner strength. So you've been sapping the vital forces by sending them out too much. And you haven't drawn them in and sublimated them, brought them up the spine. You see, from the lowest center, the organs of procreation, to the organs of evacuation, to the organs of digestion. See, these are bodily areas associated with the chakras, to the organ of the heart, to the throat, to the third eye, and, and to the crown. You think that wasn't known in Christ's time? Called it the seven churches. He was talking about spiritual centers located as it were in the body, not actually in the body anatomically, but associated with those centers in the body. Bring that energy up. That's called Kundalini Yoga in the tantric science of India. They knew a lot about that because they, they focused on that for a while. And then you can become a boon to yourself and to others. The work that a realized soul does far outlives the work of an unrealized soul. That's why Christ's teachings have lasted for 2,000 years. And, and the teachings of Vedanta have lasted since thousands of years before Christ. So in that way, reach longevity, have your spiritual power amount to something. And that means reserving it, not expending it. There's the fireworks of expenditure. But inner success depends on something, as I was saying earlier, completely different. Something very unique endemic to spiritual soil itself. So you're going to have to restore and restrain those senses and, and store up that power, use it for the welfare of all beings. In this way, those who seek the unmanifested and those who seek the manifested both reach the goal. They satisfy these criterion. So it's a very good teaching in these five slokas. Now he goes into a section there on the board that's called Chaga Yoga. Chaga means renunciation how to renounce things in the proper spirit. We know that there's a kind of immature renunciation which renounces objects out of aversion. Uh, and that's not, of course, mature. It's very green. Basically, renunciation happens in the mind, not in the external world. You may, if you have a problem with objects or things, they call that, what nowadays, addiction. If you've fallen so low as to be addicted, then yes, you're going to have to do some sort of strong work in that area to try and relieve yourself of such ignoble things. It's very unmanly to be addicted to anything. You should be free all the time. And the only freedom is in the self. Sri Krishna has several ways of treating this idea of renunciation. Basically, it must first be stated that you should have never fallen from your true self at all in the first place. You should always be in knowledge of your true self. Back in the time of Sri Krishna and the ancient rishis, you taught your kids this from a very young age. Simply by transmitting these slokas to them, the slokas of non-dual truth, you recited it to them, they memorized them, they recited it back to you, and you spent some several hours of the day coaching them in all the truths of non-dualism. So that when they grew up, they didn't have the problems that you see in, in the people of the day. They were armed to the teeth, as we said, with the most invisible weapons. 
So that has to be said first and foremost. In other words, you wouldn't have to renounce anything if you already knew yourself as the true self. You could move among the sense objects without the least attachment to them. You could enjoy them or give them up according to your will. Or like my teacher used to say, you have to be able to attach and detach at will. If you attach to something, it has to be simply for the moment, for the purposes of seeing it in its true nature, or the purpose of serving, or whatever the case may be, then you should be able to immediately let go of it and detach. This is a great uh, art. You become versed in the greatest of all arts, the art of detachment, vairagyam. Like my teachers to say, we wouldn't even have to practice spiritual austerities if we already knew ourselves as the Atman. So this necessity to practice comes about only for the person who's forgotten their true nature. It's not anything you can lose, because it is all pervasive. It's always there in you. That's why they say that you're not separate from God. You can never be separate from God. You're always intrinsically connected. Like Sri Ramakrishna said that there's a certain calmy creeper, a kind of water plant that covers the lake. And you, you take one strand of it and pull it, the whole thing all the way across the lake will move. <laughs> the whole plant, because it's all connected underneath. So in that way, that's your intrinsic connection to God. You're always connected there. That's called inseparability, indivisibility. And that's one of the names they give Brahman. Indivisible. You hear that all the time. It's indivisible. So you must work that into your physical, verbal, and mental vocabulary. Indivisible. What is God? It's indivisible. What does that mean? And think about it. Meditate on it. And accept it and implement it into your thinking process about what reality consists of. And that gets us into our inspection of chaga, renunciation, slokas 8 through 12. He says, if, if you can cognize the self best of all, if you know yourself to be one with Brahman, that's the best of all possible things. However, if you can't, here's your options. <laughs> if you are not able to fix your mind steadily on me, realizing me, then seek to reach me by abhyasa, yoga. Abhyasa means constant practice. If you've forgotten yourself, then you have to retrieve yourself, as it were. Re retrieve remembrance of yourself. So that is where you're going to have to engage in various practices. If you're unable to practice, so he's giving you steps right on down the line. So cognize the self and be free. If you can't do that, then practice. If you can't practice, then do all actions for my sake. Offer everything, everything you do to God. Just think of all your work, all your action, even the fruits, the outcomes, whether they be good or bad. Offer them all to God. If you can't do that, if you can't even do that, and you feel that worthless, then uh, renounce all fruits of action with the self-subdued. Take refuge in me and renounce all fruits of action. So, if we read that, straight, slokas 8 through 12, fix your mind on me alone, let your thoughts dwell in me, you will hereafter live in me, of this there is no doubt. That's the best. It's all Brahman, I'm in Brahman, I'm always aware of Brahman, Brahman's aware of me, there's just no doubt about this, this is the way I live, this is called an enlightened state of mind. If you are unable to fix your mind steadily on me, O Dhananjaya, that's a name for Arjuna, then seek to reach me by abhyasa yoga, constant practice. That's your next option. 
If you're unable to practice abhyasa yoga, constant practice, then be intent by doing actions for my sake. For even by performing actions for my sake, you can attain a perfection. You can get a certain perfection out of offering all fruits of action. If you are not able to do even this, then taking refuge in me, abandon the fruits of all action with the self-subdued. That's slokas 8 through 12. Now, he sums it up. Better indeed is knowledge than formal practice. That is, if you have knowledge of your identity with Brahman, that's the best thing. That's better than practice. But better than knowledge is meditation. Better than meditation is the renunciation of fruits of all action, for peace follows renunciation. So this is how he sums up the idea of chaga, renunciation. You really get peace by the renunciation of the fruits of all actions. I mean, think of it. All the actions and all the thoughts and all the deeds and all the speech, everything that people are engaging in in this day and age is really for some sort of result. They're thinking about some sort of result. If you could somehow renounce all the fruits, take that out of the equation, that means you'd be getting rid of desire and attachment and all the possible overlays that come about by such a interaction with the things of the world and just renounce them all on the spot and then your mind would rest in peace because it wouldn't be thinking about uh, objects anymore, it wouldn't be coveting them, it wouldn't be, be getting addicted to them, it wouldn't be attaching to them, it wouldn't even be thinking of them, it would just be thinking merely of renunciation for the sake of renunciation. That's called mature renunciation. Sri Ramakrishna was the king of renunciates, but he never tried to renounce anything. It wasn't an attempt on his part. He was born with the spirit of renunciation. That is, it was natural in him. He didn't say, oh, you know, there's the world, I have to renounce it. In fact, I just said he saw it as a form of Brahman and embraced it, you see. So, he used to think, he used to say, here I can eat, drink, and be merry. So what's the difference between a Ramakrishna eating, drinking, and being merry, and a worldly person eating, drinking, and being merry? You see, if you put them side by side, what would be the difference? This innate spirit of renunciation, that Ramakrishna eats, drinks, and is merry, without ever becoming attached to the objects of eating, the objects of drinking, or the sensations of pleasure that come with being merry. You see, it's all completely renounced from the get-go. So he doesn't step into the arena of the world with any kind of potential problem. And Vivekananda used to quote from the Vairagya Stotram, is a Stotram about renunciation. He says something like, if I can paraphrase it, the beautiful fear disfigurement, the wise fear competition, the rich man fears thieves. The uh, conclusion of it being that no matter what vocation you undertake or what area of life, there's always something to fear, something to brood on. If you were to renounce everything, mentally that is, you would be in that state of fearlessness. So the last statement or line in every one of those phrases is only renunciation is fearless. Everything else comes in the realm of duality with its accompanying opposite. See. So chaga is a great word for any spiritual aspirant who's getting serious about it. So, better indeed is knowledge than practice, better than knowledge is meditation. Better than meditation is the renunciation of the fruits of all actions because peace immediately follows renunciation. 
Now this brings up two teachings. In those locus 8 through 12, which I just read you, there's these two accompanying lists that I've culled out of them. The four plateaus for approaching God and the four levels of progress of an aspirant. In the four plateaus for approaching God, the first is chittam samadatam. Really, it means fixing the mind on God. If you've got this echelon, you see, then fixing the mind on God is going to be at the top of it. Four plateaus for approaching God. Chittam, mind, samadatam, making it peaceful and steady. So you fix the mind in a peaceful and steady way on God. Second is abhyasa yoga, constant practice. That's another way of approaching God. Get into the mode of practice, just like you want to master an instrument, you have to practice. When I started playing cello, I practiced two hours a day. Then when I was in high school, I was practicing eight hours a day. And at first I didn't like it. It's painful, it was hard. And finally, I didn't like to do anything else because I was mastering it. And I got on top of it, and then I could make music and so forth and, and make music with other people. Then it became a source of joy and bliss and took me around the world. And, uh, of course, I always saw it as God's voice. To me, music was God's voice. So I would always had that added attitude that it was sacred. That helps. So that's the idea of constant practice. You get into something... Krishna says in the Gita, at first, that which seems like poison at the beginning and really turns to nectar at the end, that's what you want. But if it seems like nectar at the beginning, then you ought to be suspicious of it. <laughs> that's like pleasure and so forth. You see, It seems very nice in the outset, but it gets you into trouble later on. But this thing called practice seems hard at the beginning. Later on, as you, you get into the routine of it see, and begin to perfect yourself in it, it becomes that which really saves you. So the idea of constant practice is very, very important. If you can't fix your mind on God all the time, you need to find a way that you can. And practice will help purify the mind so that it just naturally gravitates towards God. The original state of mind is peaceful and blissful. The unnatural state of mind is restless and slothful. So nowadays, what's unnatural has become for us what we call good. That you're very, very active and restless is good to the Western culture. You have to be working, working, working. Really, you're spinning your wheels and going nowhere faster. You see, you're going faster, but you're going nowhere faster. How would Christ work? Why did his work last so long? Because he was very sattvic and balanced, and he, he made a lot of headway in a short amount of time. He was the supreme energy-efficient mechanism, you see, as a body-mind. He could transform you with a word. Because of his realization, he could talk with you, and it would impress you right away, you see, deeply. Revolutionize your thinking in a short time. So there's a certain pain involved with waking up, waking up out of old habit, and then you get to a place where you feel the warmth of it, and you get the idea. So constant practice is a little painful at first, but it's the best thing for you, and you just persevere. You take the manly approach the noble approach, and you subject yourself to the fire, which you know will be good for you in the long run. It's called sadhana in our tradition, S-A-D-H-A-N-A, -A -A, sadhana. It means spiritual practices per se. And it entails austerities, renunciation. It entails the trimming down of the mind's penchant for 
duality, multiplicity, for covetousness, for pleasure, accumulation of wealth, for the attainment of name and fame, all those things are attenuated so that what you're doing is deflating the ego. The ego is like a balloon blown up in a room. If we were all outside right now and somebody blew up a huge balloon in here, there's nothing in here but air, yet we can't get in. You see, the membrane is keeping us out. That's what the ego's like. It takes up all the space inside a person so God can't get in. There's nothing but I, me, and mine inside. And the Lord has been forgotten, is kept out. So God is trying to get in, as it were, and the ego is keeping it out. That's the state of an unnatural mind. The original mind is really blissful and peaceful. You have to get back to that. So that's the second plateau for approaching God. The third is Matkarma Paramaha. So first you had Chittam Samadatam, fixing the mind on God. Then you had Abhyasa Yoga, constant practice. Now you have Matkarma Paramaha, selfless actions. That's the third plateau for approaching God. Since I'm in the realm of action, maybe I can just make all my actions as an offering. You see, and that way I can get some peace and perfection. If I can't do that, then you have karma fala tyagam. You just renounce the thing completely. Renounce the fruits of action. Because then as soon as you do that, peace follows. The kind of peace Sri Krishna is talking about here is forsaking the fruits of all action for all time. The whole thing is giving me too much problem. I'm just going to give it up and be done with it. As far as the four levels of progress of an aspirant, that really sort of pertains to the four yogas. The first is sadhana, abhyasa. The second is jnanam, knowledge. The third is dhyanam, meditation. And the fourth is karma phala chaga, renunciation, or chaga. These are like very much in accordance with the four yogas, wisdom, meditation, action, and devotion. You can look at them as levels of progress if you like assess where you are, sort of like taking stock of where you are so that you're more clear about your progress. In that way you could say, if you're able to do sadhana, that's good, if, but sadhana is better with knowledge. Knowledge is better with meditation. The whole thing's better if I've renounced in the beginning. I've become clear about it. In a sense, from bottom up or bottom down, you can look at them as levels of progress if you want, but you can also look at them that they're not airtight compartments that each one leads into the next, and the next leads into the next, and so forth, so that they all become possible for you to engage in. At first, the mind has a sort of linear view of things. Lots of times it says, if I do this, I'll get this result. So that's kind of a linear movement, and you, you go forward to try and get the result like that. That's okay to begin with, if that's what you have to do. In that way, you can set a certain goal for yourself, and you attain it, and then you go on. That's good. That's a way of doing it. Pretty soon, your mind will stop thinking so much in goal-oriented ways, and it'll start recognizing what's there to begin with. It's like that thing you were trying to attain was really already inside of you, and your outward movement to attain it was to prove to you that it was inside of you. Because nothing really exists outside. That's part of the reason for renunciation. This doesn't really exist, so I've got to renounce it because it's giving me problems. It really exists inside me. That's the connection with the seer again, right? So goal-oriented progress, whereas it has a certain facility, begins to all of a sudden route you back into cycles, 
into goals, into fruits. But Krishna just told you, why don't you just renounce the fruits? So the mind has to go sequentially like that until it realizes what's going on. That Maya is kind of pulling the wool over its eyes all the time. There's a ruse being committed in every stage of the game. Finally, it just drops it. But it drops it when it realizes that the whole thing was always happening here, within. And that that outer attainment was just a way of proving it to yourself. Let's look at the immortal Dharma. Dharma Amritam. 